you have your Bibles, I do invite you um, to turn back. We're returning to 2 Corinthians um, chapter 5. As Paul continues his letter to the Corinthians, uh, he takes the time to talk more about what it is that motivates him. What is it um, that motivates him in his ministry? Because uh, he's being undermined, he's being attacked and discredited by a group of people um, at the church in Corinth, probably these kind of traveling teachers that are undermining his ministry, um, attacking his motivation, and, uh, and not just his, uh, his character, his apostolic um, uh, position, but as a result of that, his message as well. And so in this passage, Paul's coming back to this. He, he's coming back to just talk about what it is that motivates him, especially with respect to ministry. So he's talking about his motivations uh, for ministry. And as he does this, he's also talking a little bit, you know, he gives us these little um, asides about the direction, the nature of his ministry, and the message itself, as he just comes right back uh, to the, the core message of the gospel. If we pay attention um, to what he's saying here, we too can have a greater clarity about the nature and the central message of Christian ministry. And so I invite you to stand just out of uh, respect for the Lord and his word um, as we read from chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He packs a lot into a short passage, doesn't he? Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear word from you. We love your word more than our daily bread. We can think of little else that would be worse than having your word removed from us. According to your grace, help us to see more clearly your will for our lives and for your church, for the sake of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Before just diving straight in, I do want to just say, um, in terms of the the COVID-19 protocols, um, we do believe the end is in sight, and you all have been just really great um, all the way through. This last year has been so hard, and a lot of emotion around the, the protocols, the limitations, especially the mask wearing. Um, thank you. Um, and, and, and really, what you've demonstrated, I think, is um, in spite of, you know, we've all had our moments, and, and, and when I say we, I mean, <laughs> I love it, me, um, but you've really handled it with Christian maturity. And so um, thank you for that. We, we hope that the end is, is coming near uh, to uh, many of these protocols. And, and so um, just we, we appreciate uh, your, your love and your patience. 
So this is a new section of Paul's letter. Uh, It's still somewhat connected to what has gone before. The first key motivation flows directly out of what Paul has just written concerning the final judgment. So we talked about the return of Christ, and, and at that time, all people will stand before him and be held to an account. Flowing out of that reality, Paul tells us that one of his key motivations to be faithful and diligent as a follower of Jesus is this first motivation. And this first motivation that he comes right to in verse uh, 11 is the fear of the Lord. Paul's, um, just the very first sentence here is, therefore, well, that connects us to just the, the prior passage. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. He tells us both a core motivation and something about the direction of his ministry here. And, and as we work through this passage, the two key motivations that we're going to address is here, the fear of the Lord. This is the fear um, connected to, uh, I think, especially that, that, that event in which he, we are all held to account. Um, and the second core motivation is the love of God or the love of Christ, uh, as he comes to in verse 14. And sometimes people think, well, wait a second. These seem like they're mutually exclusive kind of categories, a mutually exclusive motivation. How can you fear and love at, at the same time? But what we need to understand um, is that these are actually complementary to one another. And we can see this fairly well when we think about the authority of parents, especially of fathers. We love our fathers, <laughs> but there are times when we fear <laughs> our fathers as well. You know, when mom says, wait until your dad gets home. <laughs> well, I, you love him, <laughs> but you also, there's that healthy sense of fear. Uh, and that fear can have a, a controlling, uh, it can have a, um, a shaping influence, which it needs to have. Um, In a fallen world, we also need to understand that the human heart has been spiritually twisted by the presence of sin. Sometimes a carrot is not enough. We need this fear of the stick, and, and, and by fear we mean a healthy fear. And with respect to the Christian's relationship to God, we're talking about a holy reverence for a transcendent God who will one day examine us and make a judgment about the quality of our lives. And and this serves as a healthy motivation for the Apostle Paul to fight the good fight, to run the race to its completion, to count the cost, to follow Jesus to the very end. We should not understand this fear then as an abject terror of God. It's not the, the kind of fear where we just... You know, we're so afraid we, we just curl up in, into the fetal position. No, this seems inconsistent with what the Bible teaches elsewhere, that, that Christians are to have boldness and confidence and joy. Indeed, in this respect, First um, John chapter 4, verse 18 tells us, um, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And here I would say this fear is that, that kind of cringing, abject terror. That kind of fear has no place in the Christian's relationship to the Lord. John continues, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we're using fear in kind of two different categories. 
That idea of abject fear is not the kind of fear that Paul is describing in uh, 2 Corinthians. And to back up for a moment, in the context of 2 Corinthians 5, um, this is a fear specifically of God, and it's connected to this event. And I'm just going to go back and read the previous verse, verse 10. From now on, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, back in verse 10, he writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or for evil. The judgment means that God will do the, an assessment of both believers and unbelievers. And God will do this assessment in a completely unbiased manner. It won't matter. Uh, he won't be swayed by one's status or wealth or connections. Um, he will judge according to his perfect righteous standard. And this is a temptation that sometimes believers have. They think, you know, God and I, we, we're close. We're good. I have a special relationship with the Lord. And there's almost a, a, this implication then that where we have this special relationship that somehow the rules don't quite apply to me as they do to everybody else. But we need to understand that won't wash. God does not play favorites. He is no respecter of persons. We know we possess. So how do you know when we have this biblical fear of God, this healthy fear of God? Well, we know we have this fear when it has a controlling, when it does have a shaping influence on how we live. It is the kind of respect and awe that we, we might have, say, of high-voltage electricity. We use electricity every day. But if we do get too casual and flippant and start pulling out wires uh, without being cautious and turning off the electricity, it could kill us. And in, some, in a similar way, we need to recognize um, that we, we, we possess a holy uh, fear and reverence of who God is. We know that we fear rightly when we are actually trusting in God, when we're not placing our ultimate trust in the things of this world. We know we fear God if we're taking his laws and his commands seriously in our lives and seeking to conform our lives more and more to his will. And this fear then leads, as he moves on from the motivation of the fear of the Lord, he moves on just to talk about a little bit about the nature of his ministry. When he describes the nature of his ministry as a ministry of persuasion, again, just verse 11 Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And then in verse 13, uh, he, he talks again about um, how he's being viewed. For if we are beside ourselves, there it sounds like, uh, in some cases, Paul was accused of being crazy. Um, one of the, the, the Roman rulers, uh, I think it's Agrippa, that Paul appears before, he says, Paul, your great learning has driven you mad. So great was his zeal uh, for the Lord. So if in one sense, people view him as being beside himself, that is being out of his mind, Paul goes on to say, uh, but if we are in our right mind, he's referring to himself, we are in that right mind is literally sober-minded. 
He is clear thinking. And he says, that is for you. And that tells us something about the nature of the Christian ministry, the nature, um, uh, the, the, the way in which preachers and Christian teachers should be and usually are directed. And that is, they're not directed to try to just simply pull or to manipulate people's emotions or feelings. And if you feel that, that's when red flags should start going up. Because a true Christian ministry uh, and minister, they're going to want to appeal to your mind. They want you to understand the reasonableness of that which we believe. As Christians, we believe very highly in the pursuit of truth, in this pursuit of clear thinking. And so we aim to persuade. And... uh, and I could put it this way, um, Christian ministry is about helping you understand a message. It's about helping you to grasp a story, the great narrative um, of uh, what, it, what the Lord has been doing in this world, a story that is true, a story that provides the best account of the world in which we live. That's what Christians claim, that biblical truth, that Christianity is the best account of the world in which we live. And that means high-level thinking. Historically, let me just point out that many of the most intelligent, best-educated scientists, writers, historians, philosophers, poets, academic leaders, they have been Christians. They've been followers of Jesus. And, And don't forget that many of the world's leading universities... Universities dedicated to the pursuit of truth. Universities, and and when they were first established, they were dedicated to the study of two books, what they called books. The first book was the the book of special revelation, the scriptures and, and what it taught us about God. The second book was the book of nature. And they believed that as we studied the world, that it would also increase in our appreciation and glory of the creator who made uh, this creation. And so then Paul continues showing us what it means when it comes to a ministry of persuasion. He wants to persuade the Corinthians, not just of the truth of the good news of Jesus, but he also wants to persuade them of his own sincerity and godly character. He tells the Corinthians it's the heart that matters, uh, meaning in this case, inner godly character, okay? That's what he's talking about. It's not, we shouldn't be judging the quality of Christian servants or ministers or leaders by how they look, <laughs> which is a good thing for me, <laughs> or, or by how, you know, how impressive their voice is or, or how, you know, dynamic or charismatic they may be, um, That's not how we judge uh, Christian leaders and ministers. Verse 12, Paul writes, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Here, Paul repeats a theme that we've come across earlier. Paul, and what what he's saying here is, what I'm writing about myself and about my ministry, it's not about self 
commendation. That's not the point of why he's doing this. He, he, he's, he abhors the possibility that he could be rightly accused of self-promotion. He, he is steering as far away from self-promotion as he possibly can. But then that raises the question, Paul, then why are you talking about yourself so much? Why are you talking about your motives? And this is because he, it's actually out of concern for the Corinthians. It's out of concern for the church because, because of the unique situation that has arisen where you have these individuals, these traveling teachers, apparently, who are attacking Paul's character. They are attacking uh, his apostolic authority. And then what results from that is what's getting attacked is ultimately the message of the gospel. And so it's really out of concern, you see, for the Corinthians that Paul is talking about his motivations, that he's talking about the genuineness of his ministry. Paul wants... um, um, uh, and, and Paul shares another, I, I think, another little bit of a personal motivation for his zeal when he says that he hopes that he has given the, the Corinthians cause to boast, that is, cause to be proud of his ministry. Um, and, and this is just a little interesting aside that the, the apostle presents in this passage. He wants his life and labor to be a source of pride to the church. You know, boasting is often used negatively um, as being connected with being sinfully proud or arrogant. But here, the use of the verb to boast has the positive connotation. Um, it's a, of being admirable, of being something that would have be inspiring or encouraging. And what Paul's saying is part of what he's striving to do in his ministry is to have the, the kind of character and the kind of ministry whereby the Corinthians would feel good. Yeah, we were founded by the Apostle Paul. You know? And this is part of his drive. And this is a healthy drive for those who lead, who serve, who, who ha- are ambitious for the Lord Christ and for the glory of Christ in his kingdom. It is that y- y- you would bring, uh, you'd be a source of pride for those um, specifically Christian believers who are close to you. Now, there's also a temptation, though, that Paul highlights here that we need to avoid. And he writes about those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. This seems to be a direct um, a, a, a jab at these traveling teachers, that this is what they're doing. They're attacking Paul because he's not, apparently, he, he's not outwardly very impressive, and he doesn't appear he apparently is not an impressive speaker. You ever um, come across individuals who you read, you read their books and you're like, wow, this person is amazing. And so then you find out they're speaking at some place and you go hear them speak and you're, and you're kind of you know, taken aback. You're like, wow, that's not what I expected because it, it wasn't all that impressive. I kind of think that the Apostle Paul may have fit in this category of, um, of being someone who is powerful in his character, powerful in his writing, but not so much in his physical presence. But Paul reminds us that when we are judging the quality and the qualifications of spiritual leaders, 
We need to guard ourselves. This is a very human, you know, just temptation to judge a book by its cover, to judge an individual by, you know, just how they look or, or by their, uh, their charisma apart from their, their Christian character. And so Paul turns the tables on his accusers when he puts the spotlight on what they are actually doing. They are, in fact, the ones who may look outwardly impressive, but in fact lacked, lack true Christian um, Christ-like character. And one of the signs of their lack of Christian character is that they are highlighting Paul's outward deficiencies, or at least in their view. So first, Paul describes how he's motivated by a holy fear of the Lord. He then shows his concern for the Corinthians by building their confidence in the genuineness um, of his own character and, and his ministry. And he continues by demonstrating the genuineness of his ministry by, by talking about this second core motivation for his ministry. And that is, he is compelled, or, or Christ's love is that which compels him as he seeks to serve the Lord. Paul is going to show us that the gospel of Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. The love of Christ here is not so much the love that Paul has for Christ or for God, but rather this is the love that Jesus has for Paul, that Christ has for all of his people. You know, there are certain truths that Christians talk about a lot. And, and it's interesting that there are certain things that though we talk about it a lot, so many of us don't believe it. And I think this is one of those truths. Are we really loved by God the way the scripture tells us we are loved by God? Well, there are two other places where specifically this phrase, the love of Christ is mentioned. The first one is in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, where Paul describes the immensity of this love. He writes, May you have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, that's our key phrase, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When the Bible talks about the love that God, that Christ has for his people, it is a love that surpasses our finite ability to grasp it. It is that immense. And then in Romans 8, this is a love that is so strong that it's unbreakable. Romans 8, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's a rhetorical question. But he answers it anyway in, in verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you are loved with the love of Christ, this is a love that is mind-blowing in its immensity. 
And this is a love that never lets go. This is a love that you cannot be separated from. And Paul goes at length to try to, you know, anticipate, is there anything that you can imagine that could separate us from the love of God? Nothing in all creation can separate us from this amazing love. And so then as we return then to 2 Corinthians 5, the SV, this love is translated as something that controls us. That's again, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. In other places, this is, this is just translated, just to help wrap our mind with, of this verb, it controls. Uh, it can be translated, it impels us, or it urges us on, or overwhelms us, or it lays hold of us. And the point Paul is making is that the love of Christ has such a grip on his heart and mind that it's out of gratitude that he longs to live every moment, every breath out of gratitude for Christ. In Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is a man full of the Spirit. He understands what Christ has accomplished for him when he was completely undeserving. He appreciates the immensity of the gift of salvation. He appreciates the humiliation and the sacrifice that Jesus made for him. And he can especially appreciate it, and we need to understand this too, that it wasn't because of how good we were. or how good we could be, you know, in our own strength. It was in spite of our sinful condition. When we deserve the wrath of God, that he made this amazing sacrifice on our behalf. And then Paul summarizes the gospel of love as he writes, because we have concluded this, again, verse 14, that one has died for all, therefore all died. One has died for all, therefore all died. Now, he's referring, obviously, to the death of Jesus. It's Jesus who has died for all. And so that's a literal sense. He physically died on a Roman cross. But figuratively speaking, we too have died with him. That, And not physically, I mean, we're still living and breathing, but figuratively, spiritually, the curse of sin and the curse of death has been broken. For us. And so our being connected with him means that we too have died to the consequences of what our sin deserves. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, he continues, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for, for, uh, for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, there are two key words here that we just need to to pause. (laughs) And the first key word is this word, all. Christ died for all. And and some have taken this to mean, well, if he died for all, and if all people's sins are then paid for, because he died for all of them and for all their sins, is this not saying then 
everybody's saved. And there have been some that have come to this passage and said, well, there it is. Everybody, uh, this is universalism. Everybody ultimately will be saved. But there's a problem here, and, and that is that the word all here has to always be um, uh, interpreted within the context of the passage itself. And the context actually limits what Paul means as you move into verse 15. Um, and, and there we see that this all is for those who live. This all, and he's referring to spiritually, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake, the ones who live for him through faith, for their sake, he died and was raised. So the context just limits that all specifically to those who believe, to those who are uh, the true children um, uh, of God, the the, the, uh, believers in Christ. And then the second uh, key word is in verse 14. It's the word for, as in one has died, key word for all. It occurs in John 11.50, where the high priest Caiaphas suggests to the Sanhedrin, verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas uses this for in terms of it's better for Jesus to die instead of this group. It's better for Jesus to die in place of this group. It's better for Jesus to die as a substitute for this other group. And that's exactly the way Paul is using this word, this little key preposition, the word for. He died for all those who would believe. That is, he dies in their place. He dies to pay the punishment for sin that they deserved so that it is, not ne- it is no longer necessary for them to die and therefore pay that punishment. This is part of the words that Jesus speaks when he institutes the Lord's Supper, Mark 14. And Jesus said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. My blood, not for my own sins, but for the sins of the many. Christ died for or in the place of sinners. He died as an atoning sacrifice that, so that they would not have to. And so we, we arrive with this term substitutionary atonement. He is our substitute by taking our place and being the bearer of our sins. And all this motivates Paul out of gratitude to live zealously for Christ, for him who for their sake, for his sake, died and was raised. And that idea of to live is that idea to pursue Christ-likeness across our lives. So let me just um, conclude with, with some questions. Just flowing out of the text, do you live with the knowledge that at any time, Jesus could return, and you will have to stand before him and give an account for your life. Is that part of your, uh, of your mentality? Second question, 
Are you prioritizing in your own life the value of cultivating genuine, strong, godly character over your outward condition and appearance? In other words, the way I'm thinking, it's, you've got to take care of your appearance. I mean, we, we're not saying that taking care of the body is evil or wrong. That's not true at all. It's a matter of priorities. But the question is, I don't know how much time you take just taking care of your physical condition. How much time do you take care and, and cultivate your inward character, your inward uh, uh, spiritual life with God? And then number three, are you... But by the way, let me back up on that. The fact that you're here, you are. You should be encouraged. You are concerning yourself with that inward character just by being here. So, good job. All right. And then the third question, are you growing in your appreciation and gratitude for what Jesus accomplished for you so that it is your great desire to live for Christ's pleasure and glory? Paul's main point here is just this. His ministry is first the fear of the Lord, second, the love of Christ for him. And these motivations compel Paul to persuade others of the gospel of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, it is our heart's desire to please you, Help us in our endeavors this and every day so that in the face of all challenges, we may be able to finish the good work of faith with which you have caused us to begin. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.